If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Slate Money is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEY. Hello! And welcome to the shrinkage edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York. And on this show, we're going to take a look at some recent downward trends. Birth rates are falling in Japan. In fact, the entire population is shrinking. Apparently, this is related to fewer people having sex. This is maybe the birds and the bees edition. We need to teach the Japanese where babies come from. Um, What does this mean? We will work out what this means for the Japanese and even for the global economy. We're also going to look at Europe, where it's prices that are going down. Last week, we talked about inflation. This week, we're going to talk about deflation. And finally, there's another thing going down, and that's cable viewership in the U.S., There's a new on-demand thing called Sling TV. Is that going to bring millennials back to television? Or could it be cable TV's death blow? We're going to talk about that with Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hello, Kathy. And Slate's Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman is here as ever. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. Tell me what is going on in Japan. 
So we've talked about Japan's economic woes before before on the show, but uh, this week there's a report. The Financial Times tells us that uh, the pop the country's population shrank by 268,000 in 2014. That is the greatest drop so far in Japan's history, on record at least. Um, you know, births are or deaths are outnumbering births, and this is disconcerting to say the least. Um, you can talk about Japan's, you know economic policy, you can talk about its monetary policy, its fiscal policy, whatever, but fundamentally its demographics are just this enormous burden on the entire country and no one's figured out any kind of a solution yet to deal with them. Now the demographic problem in Japan is that there are more and more old people who are retired and not working and not really contributing to the economy and fewer and fewer working age people who have to support not only themselves but also their parents and the retired people that's the demographic problem right that uh, that is part of the demographic problem i mean the and other, then and then yeah. the, the new problem with the birth rate is that you know the there are even fewer people going to be entering the workforce. I was going to say, the demographic problem is you get more dependents. You have more people who are depending on the young to be taken care of, on the, dependent on the government who are there essentially for the retirement. Um, the other part is just growth. You know, part of A huge part of economic growth is population growth. Without it, you have to do it entirely through coming up with more and more ingenious machines and robots to make things, essentially. Um, so why is absolute growth rather than per capita growth important? Why can't Japan just be happy with GDP per capita going up rather than actual GDP going up? Well, part of that is uh, Japan's debt. Um, when you, you know, one of the ways that you can make debt sustainable over time, and we've talked about this before, Japan has a, a very, very large national debt. It's about twice the size of its economy. Um, the way you make that sustainable is through growth. You grow your way into being able to pay it and mo keep moving on and on and on. Um, when you have a shrinking population and possibly a shrinking economy in the future, uh, it makes it extremely difficult uh, to deal with that burden, that finance, fiscal burden, but also then you come back to the issues of dependency. So the um, the thing here is what my friend Lee Bukite, the great sovereign debt lawyer, calls debt in the light of eternity. That sovereign debt for many decades now has not been something that anyone ever expects to actually pay off. It's not like a personal loan. We're like, I'll borrow money from you today and I'll pay it off tomorrow. Instead, it's this thing where I'll borrow money from you today and I'll just keep on rolling it over. And so long as the size of the economy is growing faster than the size of my debt stock, then debt to GDP might go down. But debts never go away. So I want to bring up an, another example of this kind of uh, demographic issue. And I want to ask you, Felix, whether the debt problems in this other example are similar, namely China. Um, <clears throat> China and Japan is the furthest of, of, along in this demographic problem where they have so many older people and fewer younger people to take care of them. But China is preparing to be in that demographic problem in a, in a couple decades, I assume. Yeah. Um, and the question is what their debt picture will look like then and will the, whether that will be a problem. So the Chinese debt is uh, what, what okay so there are two different questions here mm -hmm. um in japan when jordan talks about the national debt he's talking about the national debt government debt yeah. when i talk about and when Li bukai talks about sovereign debt that's exactly what we're talking about where the government borrows money treasury bonds jgbs bunds those kind of things China doesn't have that kind of debt. Yeah. China doesn't borrow money in that kind of way as at the sovereign level. The debt problem in China 
and there is a debt problem in China, is entirely a private sector problem. And so private sector debts, they can be quasi-permanent as well, but they're not, you don't have the same dynamics and that you don't, and in any case, no one's worried about Chinese GDP shrinking anytime soon. You know, the thing we're, we're really scared about is that Chinese GDP growth might be a mere 7% rather than 9%. <laughs> yeah, the demographic problem in China is about a slowdown. I mean, that's, that, that you're, again, it's the, 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 that more people means more growth, less people means less growth. So the next question I have is, <clears throat> going back to Japan a little bit, what's causing this? I mean, in China, we know there's like a one-child policy. That and, and also, so, that's the other thing, yeah. that in China, <laughs> they can get population growth any time they like just by getting rid of the one-child policy. That, that, I'm not sure that's actually true. What they're finding in China is it's even in places where they've kind of relaxed it, it's very difficult to get people to start having kids again. And that actually, that's I'm going to come back to that point. Uh, it, it's a very interesting uh aspect of the way birth rates work in the world. But um, why is this happening? The, the big picture, kind of the way I frame this for myself, is what's happening in Japan is actually an example of why feminism is really good for an economy. Um, what's, you know, one of the things that's going on is that women and women don't really want to get married in Japan and have children. Um, and there are a few reasons for that. One of them is that there's still a very large contingent of traditionally minded women in the country who want to kind of have the lives their mothers did and be housewives. The problem is that Japan's economy, in part because it's been so stagnant for so long, isn't really uh, very hasn't really treated young men very well. A lot of them are essentially irregular workers. They haven't been able to kind of kind of get a foothold in corporations like their fathers did, um, and so there aren't really a lot of young men who can support a household like like, like a, a traditional Japanese household. The flip side is there are also a very large contingent of Japanese women who do want a career, who want a non-traditional life for themselves. The problem is Japanese corporations aren't very friendly to child rearing. In fact, I heard that once a woman gets married, she's basically forced out. Yeah, it's so it, we, we could think of the child, the demo, demography problem, the, the lack of child uh, childbirth is, is sort of like a strike by the women workers saying, like, <laughs> yeah. I know I, if you're going to make me dis- decide between a child or a job, I'm going to take a job. That yeah, that's that that's a big part of it. And so the thing about getting this is why I want to come back to you mentioned getting people to have kids again. It's actually really, really hard to do that. Um, Japan has been trying pronatalist, not just Japan, a lot of East Asia, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, uh, have been trying these pronatalist policies, things like paying families to when they have kids, giving them kind of baby bonuses and whatnot. Um, And it, you know, they don't have a lot of an effect. Hmm. They, they seem to fail. Um, once people stop having children, it's very hard to convince them to start again. Um, the only country that kind of gets brought back to is that has sort of had some success on that front, um, people think is France. They've managed to boost their birth fertility rates a little bit. Um, but the Okay, so the other thing about population is there are two different ways you can increase your population. You can persuade people to have more babies, or you can do it the old-fashioned way, which is immigration. Now, in France or in Italy, which also have very low, like below replacement birth rates, they can easily just turn to immigration to keep their populations growing. In Japan, that's harder. It's almost impossible to get immigration into Japan. So Japan ha- doesn't really have that option, and culturally, it's almost impossible to see how it could. Yeah, the, it's a huge cultural border right there, because, and we've talked about how they do have a lot of guest workers, but they're very strictly second class, mm-hmm. um, not really invited to be immigrants. And then, of course, we have to, since we're talking about the reasons behind all this, we also have to talk about the housing situation in Japan, which is extremely expensive, and it's just incredibly hard for young people to live on their own as a family in their own home, which also 
you know, retards the idea the of going off and time. having <laughs> It's not sexy living with mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah, the immigration thing is so important because um, you have a lot of... Com- I, I, I think there's a point to be made about the U.S. here, um, which is whenever people talk about the trade-offs with immigration and they say, well, you know, it, it might lower... It, it wages for some Americans, I, you know, it may be good for some, bad for others. I like to I like to say, do you want to be Japan? One of the only reasons America's birth rate has stayed above replacement rate is because we have been so open to immigration and families that, frankly, have more, uh, you know, Hispanic families for a while have been having more children. Right. So Im- immigrants natives. don't just increase the population because they've immigrated and so every immigrant is one more member of the population they also increase the population because they tend to have more babies yeah it's you get you get two for one it's, it's basically like a one one to maybe two generation thing where they kind of have children at the same rate as maybe the families in in their uh the country they emigrated from i can't let this conversation end without making mentioning the point that for the earth as a whole it might actually be okay to have fewer children even if it's not great for our given economy at a given Which, moment and, and by the way we are the global birth rate rate has never been lower. And as the world gets richer and the world is getting richer, the birth rate in the world is naturally falling. And there are actually surprisingly few countries nowadays with the really, really high birth rates that the population, you know, scaredy cats used to worry about. And it's wonderful, actually, to see how this population problem is more or less solving itself. Well, you know, just by means of the world getting richer. And as you get rich, you naturally have fewer kids. Slate Money would love you to go to stamps.com and sign up for their service. And I can tell you why. Because you get cheap postage or cheaper postage. Whatever you pay for a stamp or whatever you pay for a parcel at the post office, it's cheaper if you just print it out yourself directly onto the envelope or onto a sticker or something using the free software and you print out the stamp, you post it yourself, you never go to the post office ever again. It's much easier. So go to stamps.com, enter Slate Money, and you will get a $110 offer, $55 of free postage, and all manner of good karma for the Slate Money team. But we're going to leave that there, and we're going to move on to deflation in Europe. So uh, data came out about December and it seems like in the eurozone, prices have dropped by 0.2%, which is not a lot. It's just a little bit below zero. But it's um, it's not a, sort of an exception. There's been very low um, price changes. Um, it hasn't been going up very quickly. The inflation is low. And it, now it looks like it might even be going towards negative properties. Um, so ne- negative territory. So I just want to remark that, you know, we mentioned it last week, inflation is actually defined as a basket of prices. So this basket includes things like oil, and we know that oil is going down. Um, So it's in in oil prices. And a lot of the times when you hear about oil prices going down, you think of this as a great thing. And people, people say, oh, great, you have people have more pocket money to spend on other things. So at first blush, you might think, that this overall price decreasing is might just be caused by oil, and that might be an overall good thing. Right. So, so if you strip out the effect of oil prices going down, then you don't have deflation in Germany and, or in Europe generally. And if you don't have deflation, there's less to worry about. And in fact, if oil prices go down, that means more money to spend for the rest of the economy. So this is maybe a good thing? 
Um, so the, a couple of reasons why th- I don't think this is really that good news, even even though like it's good news to have um, lower oil prices. Um, it doesn't really seem like the Europe that Europe is doing that well as an economy in general. It doesn't seem like a blip. The unemployment rate is at record high in the eurozone. Um, the euro is losing um, losing track with respect to the dollar, and it doesn't look like the ECB, the European Central Bank, is going to be able to be of much help. Now, now the euro losing value though that's a good thing for Europe, right? It means that they can increase their exports, that they can get more money coming in, that they're more competitive, that maybe they can get a little bit of inflation if the import prices go up. That's inflation. Yeah, That's good. I, I agree. That actually is a good thing to some degree. One of the things that people have been saying is a problem with the Eurozone is that countries like Italy and Greece that would do well to be able to devalue a currency, their own currency, um, haven't been able to because they've been under the Euro. Now the Euro is sliding on its own. So essentially their currency is being devaluate, devalued. That's probably good for those troubled economies. Um, but in general, general, I, I think we need to talk a little bit about just why deflation is bad, right? I mean, we, we need to discuss this, which a, a big part of it, or, you know, a big part of the reason is essentially it makes it harder for you to pay off debt for one. Individuals who took out loans before are suddenly seeing the values of those debts rise rather than decrease like they would have with inflation. Because inflation inflates away debt, deflation makes it bigger. I think the way, to, the, the easy way to think about this is that if you're in a deflationary economy and you're expecting prices to be lower tomorrow than they are today, then you don't buy anything today because you may as well wait until tomorrow when it's going to be cheaper. Yeah. And so you wind up in this in this economy where people don't buy stuff. Right. And, and, and people argue, um, you know, sometimes in a short-sighted sense, that you're like, oh, well, that's good. Like, prices are cheaper. I can afford more. And, they, and, they, and the reason that you have to think about it a little bit more is that, you know, um, yes, it's good in, if, if prices are good for you. Um, but if everyone is buying less and everyone is getting cheaper prices, then overall, it, it tends to create a recession. The real problem is expected deflation. I think if you had a one-off deflation, yeah. right, and, and you actually get these quite easily when you have um, devaluations in countries with fixed exchange rates, a, a single one big deflationary step change and then back to inflation is... Um, is okay-ish, but constant grinding deflation, as we've seen in Japan, and as we're beginning to see, especially in the Mediterranean countries in Europe, is is really, really brutal on, the, on an economy. Yeah, I, I want to talk about something. It might sound a little weird, but I, I do want to get into it, which is I've always thought there was something very weird about Europe's approach to monetary policy from a historical perspective. You know, the Germans have are famously infa- inflation phobic. They don't like inflation. And one of the things that kind of traditionally gets brought up about that as well, they had this terrible experience in Weimar, <laughs> essentially, you know, the, the images of wheelbarrows, and that's sort of the, imprinted on cultural memory. One of the weird things that doesn't get brought up is actually what... L- what led direct, almost directly into the Nazi regime was a, and it doesn't get talked about a lot, was a severe period of deflation. Um, it was a national policy of deflation that essentially wrecked Germany's internal economy. Um, and I've always, I've always just never, I've never fully understood why 
the the threat of deflation, the way it can really just mar an entire country, uh, hasn't it, I guess isn't more present in their debates. Why it's always about avoiding inflation, or has traditionally been so much about invo- avoiding inflation. I realize that is a weird historical tangent, but it just always puzzled me. And I don't well, know and, and Japan, you know, is a great example of deflation, although it didn't have anything like what you just described from Germany. But they've ha- they've been in deflation basically for two decades, and it hasn't been good. It's really hard to get out of deflation, and that's that's a really bad for economy. So on that depressing note... Sorry to bring up the Nazis. We're going to... Yeah, that means you lose, by the way, by Godwin's law. <laughs> did, I just do, did I just violate Godwin's law while talking Wait, about deflation? You just lost the argument. Well, if we were having an argument, you just I lost think, the oh argument. Oh my God, I did. It. I accidentally... <laughs> yeah. I, only, I only mentioned Heinrich Brüning, though. I didn't, anyway, sorry. I, I, I violated it. Um, so we're going, we're going to move away from Godwin-esque territory right now <laughs> and talk about something much more pleasant, which is the good kind of deflation, which is things getting cheaper. And the thing which is getting cheaper is TV. We have this Dish TV is a big TV provider. You can buy your satellite TV from this company called Dish. And they will sell your TV for large sums of money, just like all other TV providers do. But they've now introduced a new what's known as over-the-top service called Sling TV. And rather than costing $100 more per month for hundreds and hundreds of channels, they're saying, well, here's like a dozen channels, and we're going to charge you $20 a month. And it's channels you like. It's CNN, it's ESPN, importantly, and ESPN (laughs) 1 and 2. I don't know if anyone likes CNN, but people do like ESPN. And you just get to watch this on your phone or on your computer or any other way you want, you get to take it with you and it's $20 a month. I can't tell you how excited I am about this. And I'm embarrassed to say this, but my husband and I spend like an inordinate amount of time just on ESPN3, like trying to figure out if there's anything we can watch. Sometimes we end up watching things in Spanish because they're... Is this because ESPN3 is in your bundle and ESPN1 is not? No, ESPN3 is free. Um, but we we like sports. It's it's online. It's online free. If you just Google watch ESPN, it'll bring you there. No, not being a sports person. Oh, I have okay. No idea I should have tell you this. this. Like ESPN, ESPN leaves it's like crappy. We end up seeing things like um, high school women's volleyball. I mean, and we're just like, okay, well. So this is absolutely fascinating to me, and I'm going to go a little bit off topic. <laughs> where the topic, I... if the topic is unbundling, <laughs> I'm actually really interested in in the economics of, of sports. Obviously. Sports is an absolutely key part of the television economy. Um, the cost of sports programming is roughly roughly fifty percent of the cost that TV, the cable companies pay for TV. And similarly, um, TV rights account for roughly fifty percent of the entire sports economy. So TV and sports, that nexus is huge. But it's always been my belief, and I don't know where I got this from, I just I, I guess I never thought about it before, that the reason it's so big is because you have these sports fans who really want to watch the thing that they're fans of, and that they will pay whatever it takes to do that. And what you're saying is, no, I just want to watch sports in general, and I don't really particularly care what kind of sport it is. <laughs> I do have taste, um, <laughs> um, but I'm actually kind of, uh, I just kind of like sports. I just, it's one of the things about, it's sort of mindless and it's entertaining and it's real because you don't know what's going to happen. But I just, I don't have enough a sort of self-respect 
about my my um, desire for sports to pay one hundred and twenty dollars a month for but it. But now you can get ESPN one, so, and ESPN so, two for I, twenty dollars. I, I, I want to jump in here. I just want to say I think your initial theory, Felix, is probably mostly right. I think that <laughs> <laughs> there's. I, I think that Kathy might be a little bit of an outlier with ESPN three. That said, there are a lot of stoned college kids also who probably do exactly the same thing. Hey, what's but, interesting <laughs> to me is that you say fifty percent of sports, but this this new package is not fifty percent of that price. It's much less than that. Yeah, well, which is so exciting. It's only 20 bucks a month. Well, I mean, ESPN itself costs cable providers about $5.50 a month yeah. per subscriber. So, you know, if you add up the cost of the channels in the Sling TV bundle, it's still less than $20. It's costing Dish to provide them. So, you know, the problem is that the size of these bundles that you get, which include ESPN, yeah. includes dozens and dozens of other channels which you don't want. So I, I want to pull back a little here and just emphasize how uh, how unexpected this was to some degree. Um, there's been this long ongoing debate about is cable doomed? Are we going to see the great unbundling? You know, are, is every channel just going to offer itself a la carte, kind of like Netflix eventually? And, and you started to see that this year with HBO, CBS doing its own internet service. Um, ESPN, a lot of people weren't sure would follow because they've profited so handsomely from the current cable model. They've become this just monolith. Um, and so to see them jumping in here and saying, OK, we're going to be part of this experiment, Sling TV, really says, no, this is for real. We're seeing th- this is now happening where, you know, the television world is going to go on with this great experiment and figure out what comes of it. The question is, does this end up chipping away at what we know as TV or does it become kind of additive? Well, also, we have to emphasize this is an experiment. There are rumors out there, which neither side will confirm nor deny, that ESPN has a deal with Dish that if Sling TV becomes too popular, then they can scratch the whole deal. Yeah, so they're claiming it's going to be additive. And for my my personal example, it is additive. I'm not willing to pay ESPN is happy to do this. Only insofar as it increases the number of people subscribing to ESPN. If it means that people wind up cutting the cord at a much higher rate and moving to Sling instead, which I think is something which a lot of people would love to be able to do. They're saying, well, if I have a combination of Sling and Netflix, that's $30 a month, which is a third or a quarter or a fifth of what I'm paying right now. Let's just do that. You know, and that's obviously bad for the cable companies. Yeah. So ESPN, which makes nearly all of its money from the cable companies, doesn't want the cable companies to die. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see how the economics of this shakes out. Um, My personal view, I've written this on Slate, is that the only way you're really going to disrupt the cable companies is if they decide to do it. That if they wake up one morning and decide that it's just too much hassle to become to be TV companies and that they're just going to change their model and become dumb pipes selling internet service to people who can then buy whatever TV they like through companies like Sling. But I think we're still a long way from there. Yeah, I mean again this is we don't know. We, yeah, it's you know, it's it's way too. There are definitely people out there. If you look at Twitter, saying, "Oh, it's the end of cable," but yeah, it's it's that's a bit premature. It, I, I also just want to throw in that we've been seeing things like MLB.tv, which is I'm a subscriber for. Um, we've been seeing a sort of a progression of more and more specialized. Like, I just want baseball. I just want, and I'm expecting this to be along those lines. I do think it's a growing trend, and I think it's how exciting. much is MLB TV? 
I think it's like $60 for the whole season, every game. It's pretty amazing. Kathy, can we have a sports show? <laughs> <laughs> I love sports. I have no I would love idea to. that Kathy was such a big sports person. I, I think we should have a sports issue. Oh, I, I would so. love to. We can, we can bring... The money of sports we can bring, is like, fascinating. Nate Silver on. And not to mention a... the power. Yeah, let's do that. Like the, the sabermetrics. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We're thinking of doing a sports edition at some point in the future. Um, do send in your questions for Kathy or for... Nate, or for anyone we find out who knows about sports, who isn't me, because I know nothing about sports, um, slatemoney at slate.com is the email address. But we're going to do that in some future episode. This one, we're very excited to be up to our numbers round. Kathy, what's your number this week? My number is short and sweet. It's 64. It's a number of students that were caught cheating in an ethics class at Dartmouth College. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? It was <laughs> not to mention a sports ethics class. No, it, it all comes back to sports. That's knowing what I do of Dartmouth grads, that does not surprise me in the <laughs> slightest. But anyway, my number is 3800, which is the uh, number of tuition dollars President Obama says the average student will save. With the new plan, he is uh, he is proposing to make the two years of community college free for any American student who fulfills certain requirements who will be, quote, willing to work for it, essentially means... So is this, is this the, a small number of people will get free tuition and most people will get no extra money and then it averages out at $38 per student? No, no, $3,800. Uh, 3, yeah. But $3,800 does not sound to me like two years of tuition. Uh, that is per year. Oh, did I, sorry. Did I, say not say, did I not say per year? You did not say per oh, year. Oh, sorry. Thirty-eight hundred thir- per year. So it's seventy-six hundred dollars. Yes, yes, it's seventy-six hundred total. That's great. And, yeah. that, and that will actually pay for tuition uh, for community college. Yeah, T- tuition is very cheap at community colleges. And I, I, the bigger point here is um, there. There have been a small group of people who have been making the idea of free college sort of a hobby horse for a while. I'm one of them, um, and no one really expected it to be on the national agenda whatsoever. Uh, So this is extremely gratifying. And frankly, we've reached the point where community college is, a lot of people say college is a new high school. Community college really is the new high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really is. Um, It's the bare minimum to have a a solid shot at the middle class. Um, And it's... Obviously, this isn't an immediate thing. It's not going to change overnight, but it's great to be having this conversation. And is there good reason to believe that the thing preventing people from going to community college was that they couldn't afford the tuition, that this is going to increase the number of people who go? I don't think it's going to increase the number of people who go. No, I don't. I, I, I... don't I, I'd have to kind of sit down and actually think about that specific issue with community college. And we'd also have to think about the community college system and how much more they can take because yeah. they're actually, you know, pretty I haven't busy. Se- I also haven't seen the details on the projections on that yet. So I I can't I haven't really thought about that in a way that I'm comfortable making that specific answering that specific. But you know, one thing it's it's better even if it's just the existing students leave yeah. with fewer fewer less smaller debt load. That would be an improvement. Yeah, I think the, the point is it, it's not just about getting more kids to go to community college. A lot of kids go. A lot of pe- people don't graduate. It's about setting the social standard for what we think the bare necessity for education is in this country and what the government ought to right. provide. So if the government it's used a, to be giving every person in America free education through high school, now they're basically extending that or partially extending that through community college, and that's a good thing. That's the proposal, exactly. It's not about it's not about getting more kids into community college necessarily, although they would like more people to graduate. It is about what, it, what do we believe education in America should be. Excellent. My number is an inequality number. The 
average apartment in Manhattan um, set a new record high in 2014 of $1.7 million, which is $127,000 higher than the previous record, which was in 2008. Now, because we have a mathematician on the show and you guys are all mathematically adept, you will not be surprised to hear that even though the average Manhattan apartment rose in price by $127,000 from 2008, the median Manhattan apartment actually fell in price by $15,000 from 2008. The median apartment has gone down over the past six years, while the average apartment has gone up. The average apartment is $1.7 million. The median apartment is 940000 The Still a lot. difference there is huge. Yes. And you think of Manhattan as being, you know, the, the where the 1% live. And this, you know, this is not... Uh, you know, I mean, these are big numbers, and it just shows how much inequality there is even at the very, very top of the market. Yeah, it's a, an extremely fat-tailed uh, distribution. It's another way, a nerdy way of saying that, but it just means that the very expensive houses are sort of skewing the, the average. So and it high. also means that, you know, in case you didn't know this, trickle-down economics has happened, doesn't, doesn't work, that if you have very, very expensive apartments at the top of the market, that doesn't actually mean that all of the other apartments in the on the island of Manhattan go up in value as well. Yeah, there's um, it's actually kind of a ongoing, a similar thing happening in, in Brooklyn too. It's kind of a, a long-term trend. Is you, you talk about gentrifying Brooklyn and how the whole borough is getting more and more expensive, um, but it's actually kind of split in half. You have one half, sort of the near nearer to Manhattan, that is property values are rising. The other half of Brooklyn, property values have actually fallen significantly over time, uh, partly from the housing bust uh, and it kind of the subprime problem, uh, the subprime bust. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you do see this, the inequality of New York housing values or you see inequality in housing values throughout New York City, I suppose. Which is it for this week. Thank you all for listening to Slate Money. If you liked the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Uh, leave a review if you like it. And as ever, of course, do please write to us, slatemoney at slate.com, the always and forever email address, which we do read every single email and feature many of them. The producer for Slate Money this week was Audrey Quinn. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon, and we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.